I'm Eric Sorensen, and you're listening to The West Block. This week on The West Block. Shockwaves in the United States after a leaked Supreme Court draft opinion to overturn abortion rights. In Canada, every woman has a right to a safe and legal abortion. But how will the government address lack of access in many parts of the country? We'll speak to the Minister of Families. You did not even go to the trucker protest. Cannot make laws and break laws. And censorship you would expect from Justin Trudeau, but instead we're getting it from this liberal. Conservative leadership candidates square off in their first unofficial but very heated debate. Former leadership candidate and cabinet minister Peter McKay weighs in. And you want to get it done, you have one choice. That's job number one. Defeating Doug Ford. Doug Ford doesn't have the capacity to lead this province. Ontario voters head to the polls June 2nd. A race to win and could be a race for second. It's Sunday, May 8th, and this is the West Block. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm Eric Sorensen. The U.S. abortion debate spilled into Canada last week, with much of it here focused on women's access to abortion services in areas outside of major urban centers. The Liberal government has promised to expand access, but when and how? We're joined now by Karina Gould, the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. Ms. Gould, thanks for joining us. Uh, first question, do you agree that there is not enough access to abortion services in this country? First of all, let me just say that I think what happened in, on Monday in the United States with the leak of the proposed um, draft proposal when it comes to Roe versus Wade is something that is very alarming. And what we need to be ensuring here in Canada is that we are protecting that access. That's number one. And then we need to make sure that we're expanding it. And so, you know, we need to be doing everything we can to ensure that if someone needs access to sexual and reproductive health, uh, services, that that service is available to them wherever they live in this country. Well, you've had a few days now to sort of take in what happened south of the border, and the government has had seven years to take action. Uh, are you committed to increase an in access to abortion in that case? And if so, uh, how will you do it? Well, we've already taken a number of steps, and let's be clear, the first thing we have to do is protect it, because um, just like in Canada, we're not immune to the forces that want to limit or restrict a woman's right to access abortion services in Canada. In fact, uh, you know, in the House of Commons right now, there are a number of Conservative MPs that voted just last year uh, to restrict a woman's right to access abortion. So we have to first of all, stand up and protect it. We've already taken action through the Canada Health Act in New Brunswick, for example, where they limited um, women's rights to access surgical abortions. And so we uh, held back some of the Canada Health Transfer as a result. And we'll continue to do that across the country if necessary. Um, there are Conservative premiers in this country right now who are taking steps, um, whether it's in New Brunswick to limit access or whether it's in Ontario, where, you know, Premier Doug Ford um, actually overturned a law that would have protected healthcare providers and patients seeking sexual health and reproductive services uh, from being the targets of protests. 
um, that buffer zone, that law that was put in place, one of the first things he did was overturn it. So we still have work to do here in this country, but that's absolutely the work that we're committed to doing at the federal level. Your partner in governing, Jagmeet Singh, says it's uh, or suggests it's a lot of talk and no real action. And I'm not hearing from you any specifics as to what are you going to do next to address the fact that there is not access everywhere. Even in New Brunswick, which you mentioned, it's not like there's an, suddenly an increase in access. Well, but so we have to remember that it's provinces and territories that provide health care services. But that's why we're using the tools available at the federal level. So the Canada Health Act, for example, uh, you know, we held back funding in New Brunswick. Um, we also held back funding in Ontario just this March. Um, you know, we are using the tools that we have at the federal level. Um, and the other thing that we did in budget 2021 last year was we committed $45 million to support community organizations and clinics that support vulnerable groups, particular to access abortion services, and we'll continue to do that. It's in the mandate letter of Minister Duclo and Minister Ian, and uh, you know we will continue to work with provinces and territories because it is enshrined in our charter rights. The Supreme Court decision in Canada in 1988, when the Morgenthaler decision came out, that it is the right, the security of person of a woman to have access to those abortion services. We have to protect it and we have to keep working with provinces and territories to expand that access. Specifically, would you consider free birth control to um, assist young people uh, in, you know, not getting pregnant in the first place? Well, let's be very clear. I mean, the reason why people access abortion is for a whole range of reasons. Um, and birth control is not 100% effective. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do everything we can to support people who choose to use birth control um, to access it. But I think we have to be clear that, you know, it's, it's, it's not always because someone's not using birth control that they're seeking access to an abortion. So I think we just have to make sure that, that that's there and we need to support people no matter what the reason is um, that they need to access these services. No, I mean, just we're looking at the potentially a, a suite of options. It's just that we're not hearing of any yet. You're, you're saying that you're kind of addressing it and you've, you know, you've hit it Ontario, you've hit it New Brunswick. That hasn't achieved anything and there's been several years to go. Will you meet with the premiers or the health ministers provincially to see if there isn't some, you know, some way in which you can address the problem? Well, those conversations are ongoing. I mean, the the holdback from New Brunswick and Ontario, which is a strong action from the federal government, um, to say that you have an you have a responsibility to provide these services to your citizens, um, and so we're using the tools that we have. Um, but none of those happened in a vacuum. I mean, they happened after conversations between uh, the federal and provincial government, between the ministers. Um, you know, those conversations are absolutely ongoing. And certainly, you know, the the message that we send from the federal government is that, you know, the provinces and territories have a responsibility to uphold the charter rights of their citizens when it comes to access to reproductive and sexual health uh, services. And certainly we will continue to impress that um, and to work with them. There's a real possibility that uh, young American women are going to be coming across the border to get access to abortion services here. Uh, you've indicated that Canada would be open to that. Are you, what do you say to that segment of the population in Canada that isn't comfortable with abortion and would be uncomfortable to see that there's going to be more access and more people like coming into the country so there will simply be more abortions in the country? Well, first of all, it is a charter right 
of every Canadian to have access to this service. So that is the right that is already enshrined in our charter and one that we must uphold. The second part of it is, is that, you know, Roe versus Wade has not yet been overturned. Um, that being said, uh, there is enough support at the Supreme Court level, but it doesn't mean that access to abortion would be restricted across the entire United States. There will still be states, for example, California, that, you know, will be providing access to abortion services. Um, and so it's unlikely that for a lot of Americans, Canada will be the first choice um, in terms of where they're coming. Yeah. But we would not turn someone away. Um, you know, they would still have to pay out of pocket because they're not covered by our provincial health insurance programs. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that you can criminalize or make abortion illegal, but you're not going to stop abortion. All you're going to stop is safe abortion and you're going to stop saving lives. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, is every year there are 25 million unsafe abortions that happen around the world. And there's very clear evidence that the number, the proportion of abortions that occur, occur in countries where it is legal versus where it is illegal is roughly the same. It's just you have safe abortions or you have dangerous ones. All right. Karina Gould, thank you for talking to us. Thank you so much, Eric. The average trucker has more integrity in his pinky finger than you had in your entire scandal-plagued liberal cabinet. But Mr. Poliev, during that period, supported an illegal blockade. Mr. You cannot Mr. make laws and break Mr. laws. That was a heck of a debate last Thursday among five of the six conservative leadership candidates. And who better to talk about where this is going than a former leader of the progressive conservatives, former cabinet minister and a former candidate for the conservative party leadership, Peter McKay. Peter, great to have you. The elbows were up. It was not always civil. Um, was that debate good for the party? Well, acrimonious, uh, not civilized, as you've said. Um, in short, no, I, I don't think that portrays the image uh, that people are looking for in political leadership. Um, having said that, you know, leadership contests by design are intended to test the mettle of, uh, of potential leaders and their ideas and to see if they're tough and able to defend and, and more importantly, articulate those, those ideas and vision. But when it becomes personal, when you see some of the, you know, really pointed kind of nasty exchanges on display in that debate, I, I don't think it bodes well. And I, and I frankly, I don't think the overall public impression uh, of uh, Canadians is is positive. It doesn't is not assigned to any political party. It's, it's just simply off putting. So, uh, you know, one of the big questions here for the party is electability. The party has lost three elections in a row. Pierre Polyev seems to be the front runner. After you saw sort of his message, his style, sure, maybe he can win the leadership. Can that win uh, a general election? Well, I think that is the biggest question that the membership have to ponder. Uh, as you framed it, it is what... Uh, type of leader is electable in the general public in a general election. Now, that election may not come until 2025. So some would argue that the new leader is going to have a significant period of time to uh, craft themselves, possibly even recreate some of the image or the narrative 
But in, in essence, um, you know, those areas, particularly urban centers, uh, places like Atlantic Canada, where I am, Quebec, most certainly, those are areas where the Conservative Party has to make inroads if they want to form a government. And, and let's never lose sight of that fact. It's about competitiveness in the next general election. I think that Conservatives have to be, frankly, quite concerned about. Three elections, a possible fourth electoral loss is, uh, is very hard to swallow for, for members of this party. Jean Charest kind of showed, reminded a lot of us of uh, what he is capable of as an orator and a debater. Um, does he scare the Liberals the most, do you think, if, if it came down to that kind of question? Uh, or, or is that something Conservative members are going to consider? Well, I, I, I think yes, frankly, to both. I think that's certainly something that they are considering. Uh, who's most electable, who is going to give us the competitive edge. Uh, Jean Charest is a known commodity. Arguably, all of the, the, uh, the candidates before the membership are, are known and, and will be more known by the, the date uh, that they're elected. And then we'll have this period that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Jean Charest is an interesting candidate to, because he was in federal politics, of course, for a significant period of time, a minister in the Mulroney government, then a leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, then was pulled into uh, or, or called to action to go back to his home province of Quebec, uh, become the, the liberal leader, uncontested at that time, and then become premier, uh, although he lost his first election. But and then he has a, you know, a 10-year record as a premier. It's interesting to note, Eric, as you would know, following these matters closely, no provincial uh, premier has ever, has ever become the prime minister of Canada. Uh, and, and Jean Charest makes a, a compelling case and, and mentioned that, in fact, in the debate. And so he certainly has a lot more uh, to, to answer for in some ways and a lot of uh, previously held positions and, and uh and current positions to defend other candidates. Uh, Pierre Poliev, I, I worked with in Ottawa as well. He was part of the, the Harper government. So has those positions and, and record to defend as well. So as, as the front runners, um, they, they are very different in many ways. And that was on full display in the debate. But let's not forget the process itself. The, the membership sales, critically important phase. The the persuasion phase, as it's sometimes called. And then there's the, the dynamic of this down-ballot support, uh, as we saw in the last leadership contest. This is, this is critical. And is there actual or perceived alignments between the candidates? All of that to say, Eric, is this race is far from over. We don't know what the finer, final voting pool uh, number will look like. And so I think this first debate was really the, the proverbial shot across the bow for candidates to, uh, to maybe make a, an early impression. But uh, there is a lot, and I would suggest the majority are still undecided. Hey, we, we hardly have time to touch on the others, like Leslin Lewis, Patrick Brown, uh, among the other candidates. Is there somebody you're looking for to be able to pierce what, what last, or last Thursday seemed to be just sort of a two-person debate? Well, you know, one of the, the individuals who came across, I thought, in, in a very calm and deliberate way was Scott Aitchison. He, you know, he, in fact, called out the party. Is this what Canadians want? He said, in essence. Leslin Lewis, I think, is, is leaning in more, taking perhaps a more aggressive stance, uh, going after Polyev on some of his positions. And Roman Baber is, uh, you know, the, the classic sort of 
um, underdog in, in a way, although I thought he conducted himself very well, also presented a, a more measured and, and thoughtful voice. Uh, he has a compelling story as someone who came to Canada from Russia as a teenager and has, uh, has really, I, I think, excelled and, and lived the Canadian dream, as he puts it. And so I, I think that, you know, we have a lot of quality candidates and some very interesting ideas that are yet to be fleshed out in the course of the campaign. So we finished sort of the, the entry level stage. Now we're into uh, the, the frantic and arguably most important element, and that is membership sales and getting support um, at least into position to vote for us. One thing to keep in mind, Eric, it's not how many memberships you sell, it's how many people actually mark the X. Uh, that is, is sometimes overlooked. Peter, we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll want to check in with you again. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Eric. Great talking to you. The Ontario election is in full swing, and Doug Ford appears to have a big head start. An Ipsos poll done for Global News gives Ford and the PCs a 13-point lead among decided voters. In what might be a fight for second, the Liberals and NDP are neck and neck, and the Greens are further back. Worth noting, 13% were undecided, the poll taken just before the race began. Joining us now, Sabrina Nanji, founder of the Queen's Park Observer, and Robert Benzie, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Well, Doug Ford appeared to be cooked a couple of years ago, Sabrina, and uh, we've been through a pandemic. What turned it around for him? Yeah, what a difference uh, four years and, and a pandemic can make for uh, the conservative leader, Doug Ford. Uh, he's, he's closing out the first week of the campaign sitting pretty. I'm sure that conservatives are, are feeling good right now, uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, leading the pack. Uh, by far in, in a lot of uh, recent polls and uh, even in the GTA too, which I think is a, an area that can make or break you. And, and the bigger question is whether he can pull out a majority or a minority. Uh, and, and he's doing well in the GTA and even Toronto proper in, in one recent poll that we saw. So it still feels like it, it might be anybody's game. You know, it's still early in the campaign and campaigns matter. We're still waiting on some platform details and a full platform from the Liberals. Uh, but the Conservatives are, are going in it uh, feeling very confident. Rob, uh, history favors Ford in this, uh, being elected to a second term. That's usually the way the vote goes in Ontario. Ontarians almost always vote for a premier of a different stripe from the uh, prime minister. And here's the premier having a kind of a relationship with Justin Trudeau just on the eve of the campaign. What, what, explain what that's all about. Well, you know what, Eric, the, the two-year pandemic, to, uh, to Sabrina's point, has, has changed the dynamic. And uh, Premier Ford has worked very closely with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, the provincial conservatives and the federal liberals have had to work together on vaccines, on personal protective equipment, on financial supports for Canadians through the pandemic. So that is that has kind of forced Ford maybe more into the middle of the road. Uh, he's a different kind of candidate than he was four years ago, much more of a moderate, frankly. I mean, the, the recent budget the, 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 that, they, uh, that they tabled just before the election that is, in fact, the Tory uh, platform, the budget didn't pass the House, uh, it's the biggest spending budget by far in the history of Canada, or it's the history of Ontario, the biggest provincial budget in the history of Canada, too, and uh, spending something like $40 billion more than Kathleen Wynne's last budget, so 25% more than the previous Liberal government's biggest budget, and that was just four years ago. It's, it's a big spending uh, conservative government. It's not your kind of Mike Harris cut cut taxes, cut spending 
uh, type of regime. So, uh, Sabrina, where does that leave the opposition parties? It feels like a fight for second or maybe a desperate fight not to finish third. Yeah, I think the more interesting race here is who's going to form official opposition. Uh, you know, we've seen the Liberals kind of t overtake the NDP uh, in some polls. Uh, of course, you know, politicians love to say the only poll that matters is the one on Election Day, and there's still a lot of time to go. But I think it speaks to a strong Liberal brand in Ontario. And we kind of saw that in the last federal election in September, too, where Ontario voted overwhelmingly uh, in favor of the, the Trudeau Liberals. So uh, that, that puts, you know, Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca uh, in an interesting position. You know, not a lot of folks know him, and we can kind of see the party uh, start to define him a little bit more. They put out uh, some campaign advertising, uh, painting him as a bit of an everyman. You know, uh, he's cracking dad jokes with his two daughters. He's cooking in the kitchen with his wife. Uh, he's getting personal and speaking about losing his brother. So I think he's even got some self-deprecating jokes about uh, maybe his lack of, of charisma. So uh, I, I think, you know, he, he's also got a lot of political baggage to overcome, too. And we've seen his opponents try to define him before the party uh, does it themselves uh, for the electorate. You know, he uh, they've been tying him to Kathleen Wynne's more unpopular decisions. So, Rob, over to you on Andrea Horvath. Well, this is her fourth kick at the can, Eric. She's been the, the uh, New Democratic leader since 2009. And in each election, she's done better and better. Um, she took them from 20 seats uh, in t before 2018 to 40 seats. Uh, they have, uh, but can she get the, the additional 23, 24 seats that she needs to have a majority government? That remains to be seen. Uh, the polls suggest that they have a problem uh, against the Tories in some regions of the country and against the Liberals in other regions of the province country. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, so it's a tricky three-dimensional chess for the New Democrats. It, it's been tough for them uh, as official opposition because for two of those years we were in the pandemic. So yes, they were in the legislature, but there wasn't the same kind of dynamic in, in, the, in the House because, you know, what, there weren't very many people there. Uh, it, a lot of the talk was just on the pandemic and, and COVID-19. It wasn't about other things that they now want to talk about. One of the things I'm watching for is more pocketbook issues from the NDP, because I think there's that the, the, the Tories may be vulnerable on some of that stuff. Gasoline prices hit $2 a litre uh, on Friday in, in, uh, in Toronto, uh, a record. So people are feeling the pinch of, uh, of you know, soaring 6.7% inflation. I think that there, they, there could be some vulnerability for the Tories on that front, but the NDP really haven't uh, drawn blood on it yet. Well, we're out of time, but there's a lot to watch for, so um, I know you guys will be on top of it. Thanks very much for talking to us today. Thanks, Eric. And that is our show for today. Thanks for watching. And to all the moms, we'd like to wish you a very happy Mother's Day. For the West Block, I'm Eric Sorensen. We'll see you next Sunday. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.